Yeah, well, it starts in Cherokee, right by the Okana Lefty Visitor Center. And it is estimated, Matt, and again, I, I guess they are using the um, I, car. Please, please, do, please, <laughs> please don't explain it again. And I, the car counters. <laughs> the car counters. They they assume 3.2 people for every car on Wednesdays and then 1.7 on Sundays. But then on like Tuesday through Friday, except for the Wednesdays, they... They estimate All right. 2.1 <laughs> All right, I get it. per car. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're taking you to Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the most visited national park in the United States. And for good reason. Situated in both North Carolina and Tennessee, this park features a wide range of scenery, including a spectacular Smoky Mountain vistas, rushing streams and waterfalls, historic structures, and quiet groves of old-growth forest. We'll talk about how the park came to be, some of the things you won't want to miss, where to stay, and when to go. Plus, a very important announcement from the park about a new parking regulation going into effect in 2023. All this and more coming up next. Okay, Karen, another exciting episode. Great Smoky Mountains. I know. This is a this is an amazing park, a huge park. But before we get started, a couple of um, notes. <laughs> a yeah, a couple of notes. First of all, in a recent mailbag episode, we answered a question about our favorite national park entrance signs. And we talked about the Kenai Fjords park sign, the entrance sign, because we always love seeing the signs, taking our picture in front of them. And we had made a comment that when we were there, gosh, 10, 12 years ago, it wasn't in great shape. Right. That was not our favorite sign. Our favorite sign was the Sequoia Indian sign. But then we, we started discussing a sign that was in serious disrepair, and that was Kenai Fjords. And then several listeners sent us in the photos of the new Kenai Fjords sign, which is absolutely beautiful. I believe it went up sometime maybe around 2017, so probably maybe six years after our visit. But anyway, just wanted everybody to know whoever was worried about it like I was, <laughs> Kenai has a beautiful brand new park sign. One less thing for you to worry about, Karen. I know. I know. <laughs> That's great. Check that off the list. However, there is another there is another one. In, in our recent episode about Isle Royal, we mispronounced the town of Houghton. We pronounced it. I pronounced it Houghton. A person from Michigan wrote in and said it is Houghton. Houghton. And actually, Matt, I think it was me who pronounced it wrong. Oh, I'm not good. sure. We'd have to go back and listen. But I believe it, it was my error. So apologies to all the good folks in Michigan for mispronouncing the town of Houghton. Yeah, I have a friend who has that last name and spells it that way. And they do pronounce it Houghton. I think that's why I thought it was perfectly fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once a month, instead of just having a mailbag episode, we just do errors and corrections. <laughs> right. And disclaimers. <laughs> and disclaimers at yeah. the very beginning. We could do yeah. an entire episode every month on, on what we've done wrong. But yeah. Yeah. we're, we're going to continue. Okay. So let's move on to today's uh, topic, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now, this is a big park. It covers more than 500,000 acres, 522,000 acres to be exact. And it's a much beloved park based on the comments we get. Oh my gosh, yes. People love this park. Obviously, it's in the eastern part of the country where the population density is much higher. So a lot more people have access to this park. Right. All of these people who live there have this gem to go and recreate, even if they just want to for a few hours, go on a hike or have a picnic. I mean, what a gift this is to all of the people who live within a few hours of the park. Now, when we visited the park, we were there in mid-June, and we grouped it together with two other parks. So we visited three parks on, on one trip. We went to Charleston, flew to Charleston, actually saw that city for a day or so, which was fantastic. And then we drove to Congaree National Park in, in Columbia, South Carolina. That was a couple-hour drive from Charleston. And then we went to Asheville, North Carolina, which is about another three-hour drive, uh, spent the night there, saw the town of Asheville, which was great. And then the next day we visited 
Great Smoky Mountains National Park, drove through the park over to Gatlinburg, and then spent a couple days visiting that park. And then from there, we drove to Horse Cave, Kentucky, where we visited Mammoth Cave National Park. And that was another, let's say, four-hour drive-ish from Gatlinburg. So I thought that was a good trip because not only did we get three fantastic parks in, but we saw some of the historic cities and, and were able to visit places that are outside the park, which are which are fun to visit also. Well, yeah. And Charleston, South Carolina has been on my list for a long time. My only regret is that we didn't budget more time for that city because there were a lot of things we could have done that we just didn't have time for. Now, when we finished at Mammoth Cave... I think if any of you are thinking about doing this, you could then fly home from Nashville, which is pretty close to Horse Cave, Kentucky. Um, We actually continued this mammoth road trip because we were headed up to Detroit where um, our friends Bob and Sue live and their daughter was getting married. So this was a massive road trip for us from Charleston, South Carolina up to Detroit. And then we actually ended up flying home from Detroit. So that trip, especially if you're coming, let's say, from the West Coast and you don't get to the eastern side of the country that often, that that's a good three-park trip. Yes, it was very doable. And like you said, there are all kinds of other things to see and do. So you could add on a lot of stuff to that that, that we didn't and we kind of wish we would have. Yeah. All right. So we're going to start with a big announcement (laughs) from Great Smoky Mountains that has caused quite a stir on social media. And this is a new parking pass requirement that they have called Park It Forward. Yeah. Great name. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Very clever name. I don't think it's um, keeping the criticism down at all because a lot of people don't like it, but we certainly understand it's it's a way to offset the cost of running the park. What we should say first off that a lot of people might not know is Great Smoky Mountains is and always has been a fee-free park. So there is no charge to visit the park. And now, starting March 1st, visitors will have to buy a parking tag to park in any of the lots or visitor centers in the park. It's going to cost $5 a day, or you can buy a weekly pass for $15. Or if you're local and you visit the park all the time, you can buy an annual pass for $40. So even if they're just going to the visitor center, they're they're driving through, they're stopping at the visitor center, they have to pay to park at the visitor center? Well, that's a good question. It depends how long they're going to stay. The, the park has said you can park for up to 15 minutes for free without a tag. So if you just want to run into the visitor center and get the stamp and, and grab a map and a brochure, you would not have to get a tag. It's a 15-minute um, <laughs> deal. Or walk quickly. Yes. You can walk quickly. <laughs> now, a couple of things. If you are just driving through the park, you do not need one. And these parking tags are not location specific. So you just buy one tag and it is good for any place you're going to park in the park. Yeah. So if you're going, if you're going to be in the park all day long and you're going to lots of different overlooks or, or pullouts, it's this one pass is good for all those parking spots. Right. No matter how many people you have in your car, it's per car, not per person, obviously. One thing to note, a lot of us have the interagency passes, whether you have the um, the senior pass or the... Well, I, I'm not old enough to have the senior <laughs> pass, so I, I don't know about that one. What's, but what, what the America the Beautiful. Right. The America the Beautiful pass. Those do not work in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Again, there is technically no admittance fee. It's just a parking fee. So even if you have the pass, you will still have to buy a parking permit. Yeah, and a lot of people uh, buzzing around with comments on social media about this. But uh, I, and I, look, I get it. I mean, people people are always going to complain about fees, and then a lot a lot of times uh, legitimate complaints. However, you know, the revenues generated by these like these go directly to support the operational cost of the park, managing and improving services, and the park needs it. The park definitely needs it. As we mentioned in the intro, this is the most visited national park of all the national parks. Millions and millions of people. And, you know, they're going to spend this money on trail maintenance and custodial services and trash removal and hiring more staff. 
across the park. So we think this is a fantastic thing. But when you read the comments on the park's social media outlets on Instagram and Facebook, there are a lot of people who are upset about this. And there's room for civil debate on this. But the fact of the matter is, I think, in general, the National Park Service, the whole system is underfunded. And so the the money needs to come from somewhere to keep the parks at a level where your experience in the park is is a pleasant one. Right. And so, you know, th- this is what the parks are going to have to do is add or increase fees here and there to just make up for their revenue shortfall. Now, when I was reading some of the comments, people remarked that the park promised that there would never be an admittance fee. And so I, I didn't understand what that meant. So I did a little digging. And I guess what happened was this. In 1951, the state of Tennessee transferred Newfound Gap Road, which is that main highway 441 that runs through the park, and Little River Road to the park. They transferred ownership. Now, this deed transfer contained a restriction preventing tolls on either road. Because at the time, these were the main roads that connected Tennessee and North Carolina. And the state wanted to make sure that people could travel back and forth to either state freely without any tolls. So the so the park promised there would be no tolls on these roads and a federal law prevented the NPS from charging entrance fees where tolls are prohibited. So to this day, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park cannot charge an entrance fee. And, and some people, some very vocal people are saying that this is their way around it. Since they cannot charge an entrance fee, this is, you know, this is a sneaky way to sneaky. to get money they're, out of they're, people. They're being sneaky. <laughs> yeah. Karen, can I just say, I, I do think that little history description went on long enough that you need to put the music before that. The <gasps> Well, you know what? Yeah. There's another history channel oh, coming, okay. so I'm going to save the music for the, for the right, big okay, one. Okay, got it. Um, however, okay, so enough about the parking, but I will just say, obviously, there were a lot of positive comments about this because so many people love the park and they know that this is a great thing. This will help the park maintain its beauty, maintain its trails for all of us, for all of us visitors. So, you know, generally people understand and Quite frankly, the cost of these parking permits is much, much less than most parks' entry fee, right? Yeah. $5 a day for parking. It seems like a reasonable fee to me. I agree. Starting March 1st. So anybody visiting March 1st or later, be sure to get your parking back. <laughs> bring, bring your five bucks <laughs> yes, a day. A day, right. All right. So, Matt, I have a little pop quiz for you. Okay. Now, as we mentioned, Great Smoky Mountains is the most visited national park, and it's the second most visited National Park Service site, you know, out of the 400 mm-hmm. and something sites. Yeah, so yeah. what is the number one most visited NPS site? Number one NPS visited site? Yes. Okay. So guessing um, Statue of Liberty? That's a good guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's wrong, however. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Blue Ridge Parkway? Yes. Oh, is that right? Yes. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) The Blue Ridge Parkway is the most visited NPS site. How many visitors does it get? Um, We'll talk about that later on in the episode. So you have no idea. <laughs> no, I, I so know. You it's just, you weren't ready for that question. <laughs> right. See, pop quizzes suck, don't they? <laughs> they do suck. <laughs> I have the number. It's just further down in the outline when we get to the park about the Blue Ridge Parkway. All right. Okay, let's just say it's more than 15 million visitors. Are we going to say that because it is more than yes, 15 million? Yes, it okay. is. I just don't have the exact number right here, but I do. I will have it later on. <laughs> Now, Great Smoky Mountains National Park had over 14 million visitors in 2021, 14,161,000. And number two national park was Grand Canyon, and that had about four and a half million visitors. So Great Smoky Mountains had a, had a million? No, had 10. Is that right? My math? I, I don't know. You did, so great. The, you did the research <laughs> on this. You are Sorry. On your own. <laughs> My just, brain froze. I just for a sit in front of the microphone and make stupid comments. That's all. That's all right. my only job. So anyone who can go from four million to fourteen million, 
I think, gets that 10 million more visitors per year. Some of this needs to be edited out. (laughs) Otherwise, they're going to come take us away or take one of us away. (laughs) So, Matt, why does Great Smoky Mountains get so many more visitors than all these other parks? Is this a second pop quiz? Or is this just I'm being interviewed now? We're just chatting. Okay. (laughs) Well, Okay, I've said this before. You you know my answer to this. It gets so many visitors because it's essentially a highway. A lot of people are just going through the park because they need to get from point A to point B, and the highway runs through the park. True, true. Uh, some of the other reasons listed were because it's been a free park for so long, and that attracts people who just maybe want to come for a few hours. And the third reason is also, as we mentioned, that it is surrounded by by very densely populated cities and states. So since we're interviewing each other, Mm -hmm. Karen, um, I'd like to ask you, uh, how do they know how many people are going through the park? I mean, like, how how do they count all these? I mean, because some some people are just driving through. Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's somewhat unscientific. Because they don't have an entrance fee, they also don't have those little entrance kiosks that people come through. So you know what they do? They count the cars at the entrances. They have automated vehicle counters. So there are, I guess I didn't realize this, but there are 22 park entrances. Now, a lot of these are little dead-end roads where you go into the park on a road, you know, and it ends in a trailhead and so on. But of the 22 park entrances, except for one, they are all equipped with a traffic counter that keeps track of how many vehicles drive over it. So, yes, yeah, somewhat unscientific because what they do is... To sounds, ca- that sounds pretty scientific to me. Well, no, because here's what they have to take into consideration. So they subtract a set number of vehicles from the total because, of course, there are vehicles that come in that belong to staff members and volunteers. So they have to take those people out. And then they reduce the count by 12% so they don't double count visitors who re-enter multiple times in a given day. Because what if somebody leaves the park to go to Gatlinburg, has lunch, and comes back in? They would be counted as two different visitors when, in fact, they're the same visitor. Does that make sense? Can't we just say it's 14 million? (laughs) Well, that's what they're saying. Because half of our audience just tuned out. But here's what's interesting. So they take the number of cars, okay, that that drive over these car counters, and then they multiply it by a person's per vehicle estimate. So during the months of October through May, they multiply it by 2.5 people per car. And then June through September, they multiply it by 2.8 people per car. Okay, so we can't even say it's 14 million. So we have no idea. And and, and no one really knows how many people are visiting the park. Well, not for sure. But you know what? <laughs> Please, make it, just make it ahead. Once March 1st gets here and they have this parking system, they will know exactly how many cars are in the park for recreation, not just driving through, right? Because everyone will have to buy a parking permit. So it will be really interesting to see in another year or two what the count is, if it drops, if it goes up. Interesting to whom? Okay. (laughs) Okay. We will move on from that. Okay. Now, we should mention that... Great Smoky Mountains National Park is an international biosphere reserve and a world heritage site. I don't know what either of those mean. I know, but you know what? They're they're very important designations. So we'll just uh, we'll just say that and move on. Okay. All right, Karen. Did you know that there are four visitor centers in the park? There's Sugar Lands. Love that name. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to say the next one. <laughs> Oh, you mean the O'Connell Lufty <laughs> Visitor Center, Cades Cove, and Klingman's Dome? Yes, which is closed in the winter. Yes, the rest of them are open all year round. And I had to add this because I love a good grist mill. There are two historic grist mills open seasonally in the park, and they both have demonstrations of cornmeal milling. Cornmeal. So why aren't they called corn mills? Well, the name grist refers to the grinding equipment as well as the building. Grist is the action of grinding. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Wikipedia, (laughs) for that explanation. You didn't think I was going to know that, did you? (laughs) I always associated grinding with something else, but we can can move on. (laughs) Hey, hey. (laughs) 
Unfortunately, on our visit, we missed those. That's another reason we need to go back to see those historic grist mills. I, I know. That's the next thing you want to do is visit all the grist mills, the historic grist mills in the United States. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And all the covered bridges. Uh, that's yeah, another thing, too. We're not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we can hit a representative sampling. How's all right. That? Well, there's, there's two of them in, right. in uh, Great Smoky Mountains. Okay. Your excitement is off the charts here for History Channel. I love it. Yeah, I I cannot wait. Is it the history of how they counted visitors in the park? (laughs) No. Okay, good. This is the history of how the park came to be. Okay, great. Okay. Got it. And you know what? As I was reading about this, this is like the quintessential story of our national parks, except for one part of it where I'm going to talk about a specific woman. But this is kind of like the story of our national parks. Okay, by the 1830s, many of the Cherokee Indians who lived in the Great Smoky Mountains area were forced to move west because more and more settlers were moving onto onto these lands. And by the 1900s, the land was owned mostly by farmers, timber companies, and paper factories. And over time, the forests were cut down for lumber and paper products, and people began to worry about the future of the Smokies. And during the 1920s, there was a growing push towards conservation of the land. Kind of the story of what has happened with all of our national parks, right? Yeah, I haven't heard the whole story yet, so I I can't comment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's what I thought was really interesting, and I had to mention this, because in a lot of the other episodes, we have talked about the father of that specific national park, and it's always been a man. Guess what? There is a mother of Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and her name was Ann Davis. Now, Ann lived with her husband in Knoxville, Tennessee, and in 1923, after they took a trip to Yellowstone, National Park, she asked her husband, why can't the Great Smokies be made a national park and preserve all of these magnificent monarchs of the forest forever? Why why did she have to ask her husband? Well, okay. (laughs) Just just go for it. And she did. (laughs) Anne took matters into her own hands. And in 1924, she became the third woman to serve in the Tennessee legislature. So she sponsored legislation that would allow the purchase of 78,000 acres from Little River Lumber Company for a new national park. Now, when this bill encountered opposition in the House, Anne organized a field trip for the entire legislature so they could see how magnificent this area was. And of course, after she took them through the area... This ultimately became the first large parcel of land set aside for the creation of the new park. And soon after that, in 1926, President Calvin Coolidge signed a bill that established the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Huge thanks to Ann Davis from Knoxville, Tennessee. And her husband for giving her permission. Hey, hey, hey. please don't write in any letters (laughs) about that. Matt is totally kidding. (laughs) Yes, again, I just sit here and make stupid comments. But there's a little bit more because they had to gather up a lot of different land parcels to make the park, right? Because people are living in areas and there are, as I said, lumber companies. So the park would include land from two states, Tennessee and North Carolina. And in 1934, the two states donated an additional 300,000 acres of land for the park. And another 150,000 acres had to be bought from people who lived and worked there. So money to buy the land was raised by state legislatures, citizens, and even school children who who, uh, donated pennies. Got their pennies. (laughs) They did get their pennies. And together they raised $10 million. But now you have to remember, Matt, at this point. (laughs) Yes. Did you think I wasn't paying attention? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just giving you a little wake-up nudge here. Okay. There's really no place to recreate, right? Nothing has been done to make it a park that people would want to come to. We're talking about the 1930s, right? Right, right. So... 
During the 1930s, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, worked to get the park ready for visitors. They built roads and bridges and hiking trails and campgrounds for people to enjoy. And finally, in September of 1940, the park was officially opened by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt at Newfound Gap. That's a fascinating story. And I have said this before. We need a new CCC. We do. That would be a fantastic thing for us to do this sanctuary. It would, especially with all of the um, backlog of park maintenance, trail maintenance, and road maintenance, and bridge maintenance that there is. A new CCC is greatly needed. That's right. Yes. But as I said, this is kind of the story of how our parks were formed is somebody, whether it was a man or a woman or both, saw the need to stop development, stop trees from being cut down, and to save these places for our enjoyment. It's it's the story of um, America's greatest idea. Are you are you going to cry now? Know, You're going to cry. Genuine. You haven't cried in a while. I haven't cried at all. <laughs> I know. I do think it's. Um, it does kind of choke me up because um, just imagine where we would be without those people. We would we would have no parks we have, left. We would have, yeah, nowhere to recreate. Okay, so speaking of recreation, mm-hmm. Karen, imagine that you're now at the park. Right. Your car has been counted at one of the entrances and you've paid for your parking pass. And you're having to decide, like, what are we going to do? Like, what would you do if you went to the park? Okay. So we're going to talk about some of these things. Now, a disclaimer. We have only visited this park one on one trip. So we have not done nearly all of the things, all of the many great things to do in the park. We're going to talk about a few things we have done, some of the highlights. But the list is very, very long of the amazing things to do in Great Smoky Mountains. And we certainly can't cover it all. We're just going to do the highlights. Yeah. So the first highlight that we would mention is to drive the newfound Gap Road. Yes. The reason it's called Gap is because gaps are the low points in the mountain ridges. They're also called passes or notches. And newfound Gap, which sits at an elevation of 5,046 feet, is the lowest drivable pass in the park. So this park has a lot more elevation than you would expect. There's some good-sized peaks. Yes. Uh, in, in the Appalachians and, and particularly in this park. Absolutely. This scenic road runs for about 30 miles. Uh, it's also called U.S. Route 441. And it runs through the center of the park from the Sugarlands Visitor Center, which is near Gatlinburg, over the mountains and into Cherokee, North Carolina, which is where the O'Connell Lefty Visitor Center is. And this is a very scenic drive. It's absolutely beautiful. A lot of, you know, scenic pullouts and things like that. So don't miss don't miss driving the entire 30 miles of this stretch of road. Yeah, I remember being surprised when we drove that at how pretty it was. It is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. So another thing you can do in the park is you can hike part of the Appalachian Trail. There's about 71 miles of that trail that goes through the park. And yes. you can you just day hike just a part of it, which is what we did. Sure. You can access it from some different points. Uh, Newfound Gap has an access point. So we day hiked on the on the Appalachian Trail. But the other thing people do is they backpack this particular part of the AT uh, that runs through the park, the 71 miles, and they usually take about seven days to do it. Now, backpackers are required to camp only in designated campsites or in shelters, and there are 12 shelters located along the stretch. And you know what the nice thing about that is, Matt, if, you, if you're able to reserve a shelter, then you do not have to carry a tent with yeah, you. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, because when you're doing a backpacking trip like that, particularly 71 miles, any ounce that you can take out of your pack makes a big difference. Sure. And also, you know, if they were to encounter storms and things like that, we have had to assemble our tent in pouring rain and in wind and in storms. And it is probably one of the least fun things to do ever. It's, it sucks. <laughs> yes. just, just call it what it is. It sucks. Right. So if you have shelter from the storm and you don't have to carry a tent, that's a win-win. But anyway, as I said, reservations are required for shelters. So take a look at that if that is of interest to anyone. Yeah, another thing you can do is Klingman's Dome Observation Tower. Klingman's Dome is the highest mountain in the park at 6,643 feet. Yes. 
And they say on a clear day, you can see some things I've read say you can see five states, others say you can see seven states, but you're supposed to be able to see a distance of about 100 miles. I know when we did it, we could see a long way. It was a pretty clear day, but I don't know if we could see 100 miles. No, I I don't think we could. (laughs) The Klingman's Dome Observation Tower reminded me of the Shark Valley Observation Tower that we visited in the Everglades. Yeah, it had a long spiral ramp. This is similar to that, and and this was built in 1959, and it's interesting because this was in the National Park Service modern architecture period, and it was a departure from the rustic style known as parkitecture. So it does look very modern. Now, the tower itself is, is 45 feet tall, and then it's got a 375-foot paved ramp that leads up to it. Yeah, you walk up about 330 feet in a half a mile. So it's too steep for a wheelchair to get all the way to the top. So it's not wheelchair accessible. Klingman's Dome is a very popular thing to do. It's, you know, a fairly quick stop. As we said, there is a visitor center there also. Now, the observation tower itself is open year-round, but Klingman's Dome Road is closed from December 1st through March 31st. And I guess, Matt, people do still access the road. They walk on it. They cross-country ski. Um, So that would be fun, but you cannot drive back there in the winter. Yeah, so if you want to be up there when you're pretty much all by yourself, you can walk or snowshoe or cross-country ski up there. Yeah, it would be fun to see that view um, when everything's covered in snow. Yeah. Matt, do you know how it got its name? Uh, I feel I feel another History Channel episode coming on. <laughs> Just a quick one. All right. It was named after U.S. Senator Thomas Klingman of North Carolina in the mid-19th century, before he became a Confederate officer in the Civil War. I guess Thomas organized an expedition in 1858 to explore the mountain and figure out its elevation. Now, I've read that some people would like to see the name changed to honor Ann Davis, who, as we now know, is the mother of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I think Davis Dome has a nice ring to it, don't you? (laughs) Whatever you'd like me to say. (laughs) Why don't you just say, I like it. I like it. (laughs) Okay. Yes, that's great. Okay. So we are going to mention Cades Cove because this area, I think, is one of the most popular areas in the park. Now, we did not visit this area, so we're just going to give like a brief rundown because when you visit the park, you won't want to miss this area like we did. Yeah, why didn't we go to Cades Cove? Yeah, I'd like to know the same thing, Matt. Back then, you were in charge of planning all our activities in the park. And maybe that's why I do it all now. <laughs> 12 years later. Yeah. Do you have complaints? Do you have like a complaint no. diary that you keep? No. Is this, there's, no there's no statute of limitations <laughs> on things that that you can complain about your uh, husband? I, I haven't gotten over the Cades Cove okay. uh, missing that. 12 years seems like a long time. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> So Cades Cove is a valley, I guess a beautiful valley that's surrounded by mountains, and it also has some historic buildings still left in this valley that people can see. Yeah, it also has an 11-mile one-way loop road that circles the cove, and then you have off of that road, you have lots of opportunities to sightsee just at, at your own pace. Yes, and one of the grist mills that I mentioned is is back in this area. So the park says it takes about two to four hours to tour Cades Cove, and of course longer if you're going to do some of the hiking trails and if you're going to stop and look at these uh, historic outbuildings that they've saved. But I guess it gets really, really crowded in the summer and the fall and on weekends, and I think the traffic jams can be pretty horrific in this area. Yeah, but one thing that they do is they do not allow vehicles on Wednesdays. Well, at least May 4th to September 28th, and those were the 2022 dates. And on those days, that 11-mile loop is only accessible by bicycle, which is kind of fun. Yeah, or hiking, I guess. You could hike hike the 11 miles. I think that would be great. And I did see there is a a place um, near Kate's Cove where you can rent bikes. That's how I would like to see it on a Wednesday in the summer. I guess it's also a good place to view wildlife. Yeah, there's white-tailed deer, there's black bears, coyotes, turkeys. Mm -hmm. 
And it says here on the outline, other wildlife. I don't know. I don't know what other wildlife that would be. Like smaller, under two pounders that you just, that don't make it onto the outline. Right, right. Okay. Some of the more common varieties, you know. <laughs> All right, yeah. And about halfway around the loop um, in the Cable Mill Historic Area, there is a visitor center back there, too. Okay. Now, another thing to do in the park is you can go up to LeConte Lodge. This is something that we did. It's a backcountry lodge that you have to hike to. Yes. And it's a historic lodge that was built in 1925. You can hike up here all year round if you want to, but the lodge itself is open for business from March 20th through November 21st. Those are the dates for 2023. The peak up there, I guess the top of the mountain is Mount LeConte is at 6,593 feet of elevation. The lodge itself is just a little bit below that. It's at uh, 6,300 feet. We hiked up there. We saw the lodge. And then we did the extra little hike up to the peak. Yes, I loved that hike. And it was fun to see all the historic cabins at the lodge. But if you're thinking about staying there, just know there's no electricity. They do have propane heaters because it gets cold up there. They have a um, like a bathroom building that has flush toilets, but there are no showers. And it says they have hot and hearty meals. Yeah. Sounds like something you would like, Matt. Yeah, yeah. I like a hearty meal. <laughs> and you know how those meals get up there? <laughs> I do because we saw how they got up there. They are carried by llamas. Yeah, the llamas, they take the supplies up there three times a week and they go up on the Trillium Gap Trail. Yeah, I guess it takes them about four hours to get up there. And then once their um, packs are unloaded, you know, they're carrying food and they're carrying clean linens, then the llamas get a reward. And it's a reward that you would like, Matt. I know. <laughs> they get pancakes. They do get pancakes. I think they, they make extra pancakes on the days that the llamas are delivering. But here's my question, and I don't have an answer to this. Do they get maple syrup on those pancakes, real maple syrup? I doubt it. Uh, I think we actually saw them feeding the pancakes to them, and they were, yeah, they they look dry. They look dry to me. (laughs) Yeah, those poor llamas probably don't even know what maple syrup is. No, and we don't even know if they like the pancakes, but they they were eating them pretty quick. Oh, yeah, they were eating them. And then when the um, llamas make the four-hour trek back down the mountain, they are taking out, of course, garbage and dirty linens. So they they are the, they're like the mule train, except they're 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 llamas. llamas. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if they get pancakes at the bottom. I bet they do. You think? So if you want to hike up to the lodge just to see it like we did, or if you're lucky enough to get a reservation, there are five different trails that you can hike. Now, we did the most popular, which is the Alum Cave Trail, and it's about five miles up to get to the lodge and about five and a half miles if you want to continue all the way to the summit. And that has about 3,000 feet of elevation gain. I remember that hike being pretty difficult. Yes. I mean, when we set out on it, I th- I thought it wouldn't be that big of a deal, five, five and a half miles. That 3,000 feet of elevation gain, that was, that was pretty tough. Yeah, it's not an easy hike. But if you want a shorter hike, you could just hike to the Alum Cave Bluffs. And that's about 2.3 miles one way. And the Alum Cave Bluffs was very cool to see. It's not really a cave so much as this overhanging bluff with like an alcove. That's what they would call the cave. But that was very cool, wasn't it? It was. And, and I think the one of the reasons I thought the trail was so hard is for some reason, I got it in my mind that those bluffs were close to the lodge. And they're not. I mean, you have another three miles to go after (laughs) that. So, yeah. I thought this was a pretty epic hike. This ranks up, you know, pretty high on my list of cool hikes we've done in the national parks. One of the other trails is Rainbow Falls. And that's that's a popular one, too. You know, we didn't have time to do that one, obviously. And so that would be another way to go as well. Yeah. So definitely suggest going up there, at least seeing the lodge. Yes. It'd be fun to stay there. Right. It would. Now, of course, like all of them, it's hard to get reservations. We're not going to spend any time on that because it's all online. So if you are interested in having a stay at the historic LeConte Lodge, then just uh, check out their website at LeConteLodge.com and you'll find all the information about how you can try to get a reservation. Yes, those are some of the highlights of the park. You know, there's another one, which is uh, driving the Blue Ridge Parkway. And the Blue Ridge Parkway itself 
is its own National Park Service site. Uh, but part of it, the little little tiny part of it is in the, the park, in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Yeah, well, it starts in Cherokee, right by the Okana Lefty Visitor Center. And it is estimated, Matt, and again, I, I guess they are using the um, I, car. Pl- what please, do I don't, please, <laughs> please don't explain it again. And I, the car counters. <laughs> the, the car counters. They they assume three point two people for every car on Wednesdays, and then one point seven on Sundays. But then on like Tuesday through Friday, except for the Wednesdays, they they estimate two point one. All right, I get it per car. Okay, thank you, Matt. So in twenty twenty one, the Blue Ridge Parkway had almost sixteen million recreation visits, fifteen point nine to be exact. If you want to drive the Blue Ridge Parkway, it's 469 miles, and this connects Great Smoky Mountains to Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. Yeah, I mistakenly thought when we were in Shenandoah that that mountain drive, the the kind of rim drive, was the Blue Ridge Parkway, and and it's not. It's just the Blue Ridge Parkway just goes to the park, and that's where it ends. Yes, and then you get on Skyline Drive. Right, you get Mm -hmm. on Skyline Drive, which is very similar. Right. But this Blue Ridge Parkway is, I guess, scenic and gorgeous. Now, the speed limit is 45 miles per hour, and this is a very winding road. So they say if you drive nonstop from end to end, it would take you about 12 to 13 hours. And there are over 200 formal scenic overlooks that you can stop at. I would really like to drive the, the whole Blue Ridge Parkway mm-hmm. sometime. I mean, yes. that's that's. Uh, I think that would be fun. Obviously, it would take take a few days to do that. I, I'm not up for 13 hours of curvy roads or stopping at every overlook. But if well, you, I was just if you say- took, <laughs> took your time and spread it out over a couple days or three days, yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, and I think that there are really cute darling towns along the way you could stay in. So that would be a very fun thing to do. And of course, because the Blue Ridge Parkway is an NPS site, there's a stamp. And I remember seeing the stamp in the O'Connell Lefty Visitor Center and other places. Now, I don't think we got it because technically, you know, we don't get stamps unless we actually do the thing, right? Well, right. Yes. <laughs> that's that's the idea. Did you get the Blue Ridge Parkway stamp? I, I, Is that I, why I you're... I think I have it. You're, you're just saying that. You're just making up reasons to say a kind of lefty. Just, <laughs> that has nothing to do with... With anything, but oh yeah, well when we were at the O'Connell Lofty Visitor Center, please don't anybody write in and tell us we're mispronouncing that because I looked it up. I studied really hard to get it to roll off my tongue. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, if you're interested in driving the Blue Ridge Parkway, especially in the winter, make sure make sure that you look online because there are. Oftentimes, sections of the parkway that are closed due to weather or because a tree fell on the road, um, you know, it's higher elevation there. So it's colder and wetter and windier. And I did notice as I was just looking at the map that there is a section that's currently closed right now. So, um, you know, you want to probably want to do this in nice weather, you know, maybe in the spring or summer or fall. Yeah, so that's something else you might want to check out if you're already at the park or if you're at Shenandoah National Park. Yeah, check out the Blue Ridge Parkway. Yes, yes. Okay, so Karen, let's talk about large mammals. Yes, the park has bears and elk. Both. Both. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so the elk, at one time, once upon a time, mm-hmm. uh, the elk roamed the southern Appalachian Mountains and mm-hmm. elsewhere in the eastern United States. But they were eliminated uh, from the region mostly by overhunting and then loss of habitat if, you know, they're going in logging the area. Right. They say that the last elk in North Carolina was believed to have been killed in the late 1700s. Wow. That was a long time ago. Yes, it was. And in Tennessee, the last elk was killed in the mid-1800s. So by 1900, the population of elk in North America dropped to the point where the species was headed for extinction. I see. So where did they get the elk to repopulate the area, Karen? Well, that's a good question. Back in 2001, uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park brought in 25 elk from 
the Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Area, which is along the Tennessee-Kentucky border. And then again, in 2002, the park imported another 27 elk. And again, this is another theme among the national parks, right, is bringing back animals that once used to roam the area. Right, putting all the animals back to where they once were, Mm -hmm. taking animals out that that aren't native to an area and, and bringing others in that had like in this case been hunted to extinction in that particular region. Exactly. Of course, the elk wander throughout the park, but a good place to see them, I guess, is the Cataloochee Valley. And they say the best times to view elk are early in the morning and late evening. But I think that they do wander throughout. So chances of seeing elk are probably good if you're spending a few days in the park. Well, the Cataloochee Valley, but also the uh, Conalufti <laughs> Visitor Center area is <laughs> a good place to see them, too. Yes, Matt, it is. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's talk about bears. All right, bears. Black bears, to be specific. Uh, yeah, so the park, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, is it's one of the largest protected areas in the eastern United States where black bears can live in the wild, and they're just their natural surroundings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of bears in this park, in the Blue Ridge Parkway area, Shenandoah. That's a big black bear area. It is. I guess in the park, they, they estimate about 1,900 bears live in the park. Yeah, that's a lot of bears. That's a lot of bears. If anyone is wondering, the Park Service has some great information on their website, and they are very clear. There are a lot of rules about, of course, not approaching the black bears and not feeding the bears, and and they do a great job. But if anyone is wondering specifically about the distance, it is the law there that you cannot approach these animals, bears or elk. You cannot get closer than 50 yards or 100 and 50 feet, obviously. Um, it's illegal and violation of this federal regulation can result in fines and arrest. So they are very strict about that. Yeah. And not only is it, you know, it's against the rules to approach them and do things like like feed them. In, in a lot of parks, if they find that that visitors have been feeding a particular bear, they usually have to euthanize that bear. Right. Because right. they become, they, they see humans as a food source and then they could really be a nuisance. So it's not just a rule. It could actually lead to, uh, you know, having to put a bear down if, if people feed it. Right. And, you know, I think people are under the very misguided impression that these bears might be hungry and they're doing the bear a favor. But I know, as you have said before, Matt, on many of our episodes, A fed bear is a dead bear. And so please, please, please do not feed the bears or any wildlife in the park. We see it all the time. People are feeding squirrels and they're feeding birds and they're feeding animals with human food. We see it almost every park we go to. So um, just a very important reminder there. Okay, if you're going to go to this park, where would you stay? All right. So besides the LeConte Lodge that we talked about, there is no lodging inside the park. Now, most people stay on the Tennessee side, and they stay either in the little town of Gatlinburg, which is literally right outside the park, or slightly further, but you know, next to Gatlinburg, is Pigeon Forge, the home of Dollywood. Yeah. And between Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, there, there's a lot of accommodations. Yes. I mean, these are very popular tourist places. So there's tons of motels and, and, and places to say, I liked Gatlinburg, you know, Gatlinburg is one of those places where you either love it or hate it. In some cases, both at the same time, mm-hmm. it's very touristy. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's also very fun. Like it's, it's not a wilderness experience. It is the opposite of a wilderness experience. And I was reading, I, I was, I'm just always curious as to what the general population thinks. I know we have our opinion about things. So I was reading reviews on TripAdvisor and on Yelp about Gatlinburg. And it is funny because there would be five-star reviews and people, I love Gatlinburg. My family loved it. We had such a great time, so many things to do. And then there would be one-star reviews where people were like, I couldn't stand it. It's touristy. I hated it. We'll never go back. So it just depends on what people like, right? Yeah, but you do have to appreciate whatever a thing is, if it's the being the best of that version of a thing. And this is a touristy town with all of the fug shops and t-shirt shops and things like that. And it is like a great example 
of that kind of place. And even if you don't like that kind of thing, you do have to appreciate it for it being the best touristy town it can be. Right. I was going back and I, I was rereading what we wrote in Dear Bob and Sue because, you know, we captured our first impressions. And I love it, Matt, because you wrote, it's a funnel cake, arcade, fudge shop, souvenir shot glass encrusted strip mall. On the sidewalks, there were schoolgirls wearing heavy makeup who were performing a clogging routine while talking animatronic bears welcomed visitors. So, you know, it's like a carnival there. It's a spectacle. It has like Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. It has Ripley's Believe It or Not. So I just, you know, we just want to paint the picture. Now, I actually... I thought it was fascinating because there were so many people. It was lively. There was so much going on. It's kind of reminded me a little bit of like the Vegas Strip. Yeah. I mean, they had me at animatronic bears. Well, sure. And yeah. fudge. And well, and clogging. That's you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. So again, people love it. People hate it. I am glad we saw it. We actually stayed two nights in Gatlinburg because the location, you know, couldn't be better. Um, I think we were at the Hampton Inn there, but they also have uh, some places that have cabins. They have B&Bs. They have um, pretty much any kind of lodging that you could want. Yeah. You're going to be there with a lot of other people. I mean, it's going to be crowded. But yes, it's like very I said, crowded. In that, that area, Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge, there's, there's a ton of accommodations. Yes. Now, the night before we entered the park, when we drove from Congaree, South Carolina, we drove to Asheville, and we spent the night in Asheville. And we loved Asheville, North Carolina. Mountain town, great breweries. It was it was more our speed. It did take us the next morning to get to Oconalofty Visitor Center. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> it did take us a little over an hour. So, you know, I'm not saying that's the ideal place to stay to commute back and forth, but uh, it is a great town. Yeah, Asheville's worth seeing also. Yes. Well, like I said, the, the, the whole loop we did from Charleston, you know, through these three parks all the way up to Mammoth Cave, I think I thought that was a great loop. Yes. Now, I will say families seem to really like Gatlinburg because there are things like miniature golf, and I think there's zip lines, and there are a lot of activities for families. So if you have kids with you who need uh, some stimulation. Overstimulation. <laughs> Overstimulation. There's like wax museums. There's all kinds of stuff. So anyway, I think that yeah. I think we've probably described it to, the, yeah, to our very so, best ability. Yeah, so if your kids are tired of looking at old growth forest, uh-huh. you know, so yeah, five yeah. minutes into that, you need to take them to play miniature golf. Yeah. But I will say the people... Gosh, the people who live in Tennessee and North Carolina could not have been nicer and more welcoming. And it was just such a great experience talking to people who lived there. And everyone was so helpful. And I just love that area of the country. Yeah, I think we would go more often, like more than once every 10 years if we live closer. Well, but, we, but we don't. Yeah, that's the thing. And we do get a lot of comments and messages and Gmails and things. And people ask us to talk more about the parks on the eastern side of the country. And the thing is, we live in Seattle. And so for us to travel to all the western parks, we can drive. And it's so much easier and less expensive for us to fly back to Great Smoky Mountains and rent a car and do all of that. You know, the the cost is skyrocketing for things like that. And comparatively speaking, we can visit the parks on the western side for much, much less. Yeah, time and expense to get to the eastern side of the country is is a thing for us. But that's fine. Uh, We've been to these parks. We know a little bit about them. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's great to do these episodes about the parks there so that people have a a sense of what to expect. So one more note about lodging. Well, this really isn't lodging, but this is another option that you could have is you could camp inside the park. You could. Mm -hmm. Or you you meant me, like I could camp. (laughs) No, I meant everybody else. Okay, okay. (laughs) The collective you. The collective you, right. That's right. There, There are campgrounds. The park maintains 10 locations in the park that are front country campgrounds. That's how they describe them. I've never described a campground as a front country I know. Campground. Yeah, we always say, we always refer to it as car camping, where you drive your car into the campground, you park, you set up your tent, and so on. But car camping can also mean you're sleeping in your car. I like their phrase, front country campgrounds. 
We yeah. might have to start using that. Is that going to be a new term for yeah. us? Yeah, I think so. I like that. So this this is drive up camping. Drive up. Drive up into a campground. These campgrounds are only open on a seasonal basis, except for Cades Cove and Smokemont campgrounds that are open year round. What about the Ohana Pakash? No, the O'Connell Lefty. <laughs> I don't know. That's a visitor center, Matt. I don't know if there's a campground there. Okay. All right. Just wondering. (laughs) And these campgrounds do not have showers or electrical or water hookups. Um, None of them do. Yeah. So you're going to be smelly and you just have to bring all your water with you. That's right. (laughs) The other thing, um, camping is not allowed in pullouts or parking lots. So I think what's kind of become a thing now is people... You know, they have set up their vehicles, like I've suggested that we could do, Matt. So like in our Forerunner, we could put the back seat down and get like a little mattress and sleep in our sleep in our truck occasionally. And that's what people do. And I think then they pull into, you know, a, a trailhead parking lot. They crawl in the back in their sleeping bag and, and they spend the night there. This is not allowed in the park. And it's also not allowed in most of the national parks. Yeah, the parks have gotten wise to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a discussion with a law enforcement ranger one time when we were at what? Carlsbad Caverns, yeah. your favorite park. And we were sitting out, uh, it wasn't late, but the sun had gone down, so the sky was dark, and we were there to see the stars. And he pulled up in his rig, and he said hello to us. And and we kind of thought that we weren't supposed to be there after dark. And he goes, no, no, you can, you can watch the stars. He goes, you could stay here all night if you want. As soon as you fall asleep, you're a camper. Because <laughs> if you <laughs> want to stay up all night and watch the stars, that's fine. Yes. Uh, so the, the, the cutoff is falling asleep. Right. Sure. Yeah. I guess you could sit in your car in the parking lot if you're awake and read yeah, your book. You can visit. But you, you can yeah. t- talk, get to know each other better. Yeah. <laughs> but you cannot sleep. Get, get so. fall asleep, then you're a camper. Right. All right. So that's that. Now, when is the best time to go to this park? Obviously, it's going to be very crowded in summer and fall. Yes. And, and depending on the weather, probably spring. Right. Yeah. You know, with 14 million visitors, you know, this park is going to be crowded. So a few ways we always talk about to try to avoid some of the crowds, and that's don't schedule your visit over a weekend if possible. You know, if you're going to go for five days, go Monday through Friday. And also these popular trailheads and these popular areas like Cades Cove, get there really early in the morning to beat the the, the rush and the cars that are going to fill up these parking lots and such. Yeah, that's our advice for most parks. Get there early. Right, right. Yeah. All right. Um, what else? We Oh, we should mention, you know, we were rereading our section of Dear Bob and Sue, the Great Smoky Mountains section, and we talked in the book about Smoky, the, the name of the park being spelled S-M-O-K-Y, no E. Mm-hmm. And I think we mentioned that that was a misspelling. I don't know why we said that in the book. Matt, we wrote that because you are obsessed with Smokey Bear, and Smokey Bear is spelled with an E-Y. Yeah, I'm not obsessed with Smokey <laughs> Bear. I have a healthy <laughs> amount of respect for the bear. You are right this very minute wearing your 20252 yeah. hat that you created for Dirtlander. Uh-huh. Right, right. Smokey it's, zip code. It's out of respect for the bear. <laughs> trying to keep our forest from burning down. All right. Well, you call it respect. I call it obsession. (laughs) All right. Well, if if anyone else would like to show their respect for Smokey Bear, they get a 20252 hat or t-shirt at dirtlander.com. This episode's brought to you by dirtlander.com. Nice way to work that in, Matt. That that was admirable. (laughs) Now, anyway, you can spell Smokey both ways, with an E or without an E. Generally, smoky without an E is an adjective, a smoky area, right? Right, like, right. And whether it's fire or fog or whatever, and smoky with an E is generally a, a proper noun. Yes, smoky yeah. Robinson, smoky bear, <laughs> right. And lastly, why is it called Great Smoky Mountains National Park? Is this a pop quiz? <laughs> end of the episode well i i would guess it's uh 
I mean, if you're at one of these overlooks, you're looking over the distance, right? It's going to have somewhat of a haze to it, right? Yes. There's kind of a, a natural bluish fog that often hangs over the range. And I guess this fog is caused by vegetation that emits organic compounds. So it's it's something natural in nature that is emitting this kind of fog, and it has a bluish tint, and that's how it got its name, the Great Smoky Mountains. There you go. Yes. Learn something new. That's right. Volatile organic compounds, <laughs> which is not as a good of a name, Volatile Organic Compound National Park. No, it does not sound as good. <laughs> anyway, uh, Great Smoky Mountains is an amazing, beautiful park, and uh, for all of you lucky people who get to recreate there all the time we are slightly envious and for the rest of us should definitely plan a visit to to see this park yeah we need to go back there soon we do i have some grist mills to check off my list so that's all we have for today thanks so much for tuning in if you have been lying awake at night trying to think of ways to help support our podcast we have a suggestion that's right, we do. You could join our Patreon account, where for $5 a month, you'll have access to bonus content that we create just for our patrons. And some of those are videos, which I have to say take a lot more preparation. Well, yeah, I have to wait for somebody to curl their hair or uncur- straighten their hair or uncurl it or curl it and put on just the right outfit. Yeah. Well, sometimes the lighting is harsh. Just gonna say. <laughs> I, I'm just gonna move on. I'm gonna move on from that. <laughs> I'm gonna suppress all my natural instincts right. to comment and just say yes. Most of our bonus content is going to be audio from now on. That's right. It's safer that way. Yeah. All right. Yes. Thanks for joining us. And we will be back next week with an exciting new mailbag episode. Mm-hmm.